This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Illawarra Turf Club turned on a day to remember at Kembla Grange on November the 23rd to bring down the curtain on a remarkable Everest carnival. Mr Seawolf's win in the feature gave jockey James MacDonald a unique double, the hunter and the gong in the inaugural year of the two new races. There'll be a few more highlights before year's end. Thursday, December 12th, we'll see the running of the Wyong Magic Millions two-year-old classic and the Magic Millions three and four-year-old stakes. To Randwick on Saturday the 14th of December for the running of the time-honoured Group 2 Villiers and the half-million-dollar English Nursery with the Group 3 Summer Cup scheduled for Boxing Day. Keep an eye out for one of the popular night meetings at Canterbury Park, a perfect venue for a Christmas party. The show rolls on in New South Wales racing as an unforgettable 2019 comes to a close. Matthew Hill, you were part of a four-man commentary team used by the BBC and you were stationed at the most famous of all Grand National obstacles, the fearsome Beecher's Brook. How fearsome is it? <laughs> it's not as fearsome nowadays, but uh, it used to be extraordinary. In fact, for anybody who uh, is fascinated by the Grand National, there's one photo, I think, uh, that sums up the Grand National as uh, crisp in the 70s. So the mighty Australian steeplechaser jumping beaches, Brook, and he didn't touch a twig. And the, the, the picture's taken. Uh, you just have to uh, Google crisp beaches, Brook, and, and you'll find it. It is a remarkable picture of just how tall Beaches Brook is. And the feature of Beaches that makes it so scary is that the takeoff side is higher than the landing side. And the landing side has a, a reverse dip. So basically, when the horses used to land, their necks would arch and uh, they'd have to try and climb up the, the, the ditch. And of course, there was water on the other side as well that uh, famously Captain Beecher fell in and, and nearly sank in, which means that. Uh, that's why they called it Beaches Brook. So mm -hmm. nowadays they've taken that ditch out. Uh, the water is basically uh, non-existent uh, and the fence is a lot smaller. Um, and as a result, uh, very rarely do we see pile-ups at, at Beaches Brook. In fact, very rarely do we see pile-ups in the Grand National at all. But the first year I called the Grand National uh, in 2004, we had a massive pile-up the day before in the consolation race called the, the Topham Chase. And uh, there was a seven-horse pile-up there that day. Um, and they have uh, a race on the first day of the carnival called the Fox Hunters, where they have amateurs go round uh, Aintree uh, with their point-to-point -point horses. And there was uh, a, a few pile-ups there as well. But the race has changed uh, from last year's uh, Grand National. I think uh, 28 or 30 horses were standing with a lap to go. Uh, in the good old days, uh, there would have been about 16, not even that standing with a lap to go. So the race has changed uh, and it's become a, a great spectacle now because there's so much colour when the, the 28 or 29 horses left standing run past the stands with a lap to go and they get a big cheer. And uh, the, the fences aren't as big now, but the race is still a spectacular. Mm. Well, that race is run over four miles and two and a half furlongs as part of the four-man commentary team, mm. how much of that do you get to call? 
I probably call of the 7,200 metres, and, and the race has been uh, uh, re-measured now, and it's, a, it's just under 7,000 metres, I believe, um, but the, the four-man squad, uh, when you call Beaches Brook, you probably call uh, a mile to, to 2,000 metres of that, which takes in some quite iconic fences uh, because you take in Beaches Brook and then the next fence is the smallest fence on the course called the Foynaven fence, and then they jump the canal turn, which uh, when they land, they turn sharply a 90-degree turn. Uh, there's no other fence in the world uh, like it. Uh, and then... They jump Valentine's Brook, which is like the little sister of Beaches Brook. Um, then they dis- basically disappear away from our view, and I, I would palm it over to the next commentator. And the way I got the, the job in the first place was I met the race callers on a, a Grand National trip back in about 2002, and uh, I was going over again. I really missed it. I, I wanted to see another Grand National in 2004, and one of the race callers that I emailed said that uh, – um, he wasn't doing it this year, and uh, he should. Uh, I should uh, do myself a favour and contact the BBC. And what got me over the line, Tappy? It sounds like a bit of a joke that you'd sell at a bar, but he said that the other three men on the commentary team there's an Englishman, a Scotsman, and an Irishman. And if an Australian rings up, then uh, they would definitely go for it, and they did. And uh, that six uh, six years uh, that I did Beaches Brook was just fantastic. Well, love it or hate it, the Grand National has been going since 1839 and despite relentless lobbying over the years, it's still there and the 2019 purse was £1 million. <laughs> it's a terrific race, yeah, and the winner, uh, Tiger Roll, uh, won it for the second time and uh, that is a very hard thing to do. Uh, of course, uh, I mentioned Crisp earlier on and what made Crisp's performance uh, in the Grand National in 1973 so special was that he was beaten by half a neck, I think it was, by Red Rum, who became the biggest and most famous horse in England's history by winning three Grand Nationals. And uh, it's very, very hard to do. So for Tiger Roll to win it twice uh, it was an amazing achievement in 2019. Yep, he's snapping at Red Rum's heels. He is, definitely, definitely. And there's nothing to say that he's just an out-and-out stayer. Um, He's a very good cross-country horse. And, uh, yeah, there's nothing to say. Probably weight would stop him. That would be the only thing. One of your great sporting loves is tennis. Yes. And you're actually coming up to your ninth year as a member of the Tennis Australia live worldwide television feed. You're one of many commentators covering matches through the tournament and helping out with courtside interviews. Now, Matt, looking back over those nine years, there is one particular male player for whom you have tremendous admiration for his talents on the court and for the fact that he's a good bloke. Yes. uh, Well, I've got to say interviewing and talking to the tennis players uh, over the last eight or nine years, they are all just fantastic uh, people. Uh, They have a great um, camaraderie amongst themselves, and I suppose they have to because they travel the world uh, together. 
um, uh, become uh, quite uh, friendly with John Millman, who's a great uh, tennis player for Australia. Uh, and he is now, uh, I, I, I will put the prediction in that he'll be the next Todd Woodbridge in uh, 10 years' time. His commentary uh, is fantastic. And I, I got to meet John calling a match in Brisbane about three or four years ago, and he loves his racing. So uh, we've become uh, great friends. But he uh, he will become our best tennis commentator there's no mm. doubt about that uh and that's been uh, shared with uh, my colleagues around the world as well they very much uh, love what he does with uh, with the commentary but he's going great guns as a tennis player he beat roger federer last year at the u.s open but uh, yeah the tennis is great um it, they're long hours uh, long matches uh, some of the matches can go up to five hours. So when you're filling in an airtime on television, uh, that can be that can be tricky. And I think the key of a tennis commentator for television, Tappy, is it, you've just got to just put the narrative through. Uh, I mean, the, the matches change, the ebbs and flows of tennis matches. But most of the time, the tennis players come in with uh, – they tend to come in with differing stories, differing levels of ability, differing career paths. And there's plenty of stories you can weave through the commentary as the match goes on to set the scene. And, and hopefully, if it's an exciting match, just set it up for the viewer. So I enjoy that challenge. It's completely different to the rat-a-tat-tat of calling a horse race where you're uh, describing very quickly and very sharply what's happening. Whereas in a tennis match, you've got a lot of time to expand and explore the stories of the players. Now, Matt, you didn't mention uh, the player, the high-profile player, uh, for whom you have special admiration. I mean, I acknowledge your comments uh, regarding John Millman, but there was one other uh, who you rate above all. Well, I love Rafael Nadal. I think that's who you're mentioning. That's that's the one I meant, <laughs> yeah. Yep. I, I love Rafa. Uh, I think uh, we're going to sit back in, in many years' time and I think we're going to um, – we're going to cherish what we've seen in the last decade or so with uh, with the Fed Express and Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. The great thing about Rafael Nadal is uh, he could he can be wounded, he can be injured or have a niggle, and he'll just chase every single ball down. And as a tennis player, uh, you, you just can't ask for any more than that. Um, he's achieved so much. I mean, he's I mean he's obviously so prolific at the French Open, uh, for instance, but. Uh, so many Grand Slam tournaments, so many tournaments in general. And I did have the opportunity to interview uh, Rafa for about 20 minutes uh, at the Australian Open a few years ago. And uh, just a lovely person, just a very nice man. And uh, does a lot for the fans, does a lot for tennis in general. So, um, yeah, I think we'll we'll look back and we've, we've, we're, we've currently, as we speak, have three legends playing the game. And uh, that's pretty special. Mm. Matt, there was a very touching moment and a moment that could easily have thrown you, but you managed it very professionally with a girl called Dominika Sibulkova. Sibulkova, that's the one. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, Dominika played a match uh, uh, in the heat on Margaret Court Arena, and uh, it was blisteringly hot. In fact, that was uh, the year that uh, there was a player uh, on the same day 
named Frank Dankovic from Canada who collapsed uh, on an outside court and in his press conference later on said that he could see Snoopy playing next to him. He was hallucinating. <laughs> it was that hot. So Goodness we had ball kids falling over and lines people falling over and tennis players collapsing. It was about 44 degrees in Melbourne and blisteringly hot. And um, Dominica, uh, she was just sweating bullets after this match and, and she couldn't go on with the post-match interview. She'd played a hard-fought uh, three-set match and uh, she virtually was in tears uh, on my shoulder as I took her off the court. Uh, mm. So you, you see them very raw after the match. Uh, some players are very composed. Some are just overjoyed if they've got through further in a Grand Slam. I mean, there's only four Grand Slams in the year. So for some of the battling players, uh, when you talk to them straight after a match, it uh, it is amazing. And the way the tennis court is designed... Uh, at Melbourne Park in particular, it's a real coliseum, a cauldron, if you like. And the, the crowd, uh, you can just feel their presence when you're out there interviewing the players. So it's a pretty special experience. And uh, the, and the players do a great job. Uh, they've, you know, they might have just played a four-hour epic. And the last thing they want to do is talk to me. But um, they do it very professionally. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's an honour to be standing there. You've been a part of the commentary team at three Summer Olympics and the Sochi Winter Olympics in Russia. You've covered a myriad of sports. Just whip through a few for me. Well, the the thing is with Olympic Games is because there's no such thing as a professional curling commentator in Australia, I suppose, or a professional <laughs> skiing commentator. You know, the, the commentators are thrown into sports that uh, – um, you know, you have to sort of uh, really research. And I started uh, in Beijing calling rowing, and uh, that was probably a, a sensible thing being a race caller. Um, you'd, you'd think a, a five-boat race wouldn't be too much of a challenge. They're a little bit different because they go for about eight minutes, but overall rowing uh, is, a, is a good sport for a race caller to do. Uh, London uh, did athletics alongside of uh, Ray Hadley, and I, I love the athletics, um, mm. the variety you get calling those events are fantastic. I think I did about six or seven different sports for the radio station 2GB there, such as triathlon and equestrian and tennis. Um, and Sochi are called uh, speed skating, which again is pretty similar to race calling. They, they, you know, they go around in their different colours and it's quite frantic, but I really, really enjoyed the short track speed skating uh, and curling, which was a different experience altogether. Um and then uh, in Rio, I covered a lot of equestrian and uh, and then athletics at the Paralympics. So um, there's been a lot of sports uh, thrown in the mix, but I, I'd say my absolute favourite out of all of them is athletics. Uh, mm. Similar to race calling, but a little bit different at the same time because you can get into that rhythm of calling the race, but there's also other things you have to factor in, such as their times and the, the pacemakers and, and things like that. 100-metre sprints, for instance, you don't have to worry too much about naming every runner as opposed to a race call where you've got to name every horse. But the one sport I've never had a go at, and I'd love to have a go, but uh, the opportunity just ne has never been there, is swimming. I've never done the swimming, but uh, mm. uh, athletics is definitely my favourite. You told me once that the Paralympics got to you more than mm. any other event you've ever come. Mm. Yeah, Rio Olymp uh, Paralympics. Uh, I did those for the World Feed uh, a few years ago, and uh, I'm not really – I don't get emotional at sporting events, Tappy. I, I, I'm not that sort of person. But I must say going to the opening ceremony of the Rio Paralympics and when Australia got uh, 
named and out they came, you know, just uh, such a tribute to them uh, for what they've achieved. The Paralympics are the most uplifting event uh, you can ever go to. And uh, it's a great spectacle. Uh, it really is. The um, you, you just can't uh, help but wake up every morning excited to, uh, you know, see what you're going to see uh, at the Paralympics uh, and the uh, uh, the spirit and the and the happiness that uh, surrounds them is phenomenal. And uh, um, if I can, I'd like to do as, as many of them uh, in the future. We're going to pause for another break on the podcast. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Matthew Hill about the lowest point in his career so far. The English digital online sales have changed the landscape of mixed Australian thoroughbred sales forever. Now, rather than wait for a mix sale through the ring, owners, breeders and vendors can offer their product within a matter of days thanks to the twice-monthly English Digital Online Auctions. English now presents an online auction in the middle of each month and another at the end. Since going twice-monthly, the auction has averaged around 150 lots per sale and has exceeded a million dollars per sale with a clearance rate of almost 80%. To enter a horse or register a bid, visit englishdigital.com and follow the prompts or call 9399-7999. Matt, the story of your near-death experience in Beijing in 2008 is well documented. You were part of the big 2GB commentary team and you were actually calling the rowing when you started to feel ill. What were the first symptoms? Yeah, so I was in, I reckon I was in Beijing for a week. Uh, we'd landed, got prepared, we uh, we'd broadcast some soccer uh, two days before the Olympics started because Australia was playing in the soccer tournament there at, uh, I should say, football tournament uh, at the Olympics. And then uh, and then uh, the opening ceremony, rehearsals, plus the actual opening ceremony itself, um, and then went to the rowing. And uh, on about day three of the Olympics, it was for memory, it felt pretty ordinary, um, just flat, very flat. And I'm not a flat person. I, I tend to bounce around a little bit. So mm -hmm. it was it was odd. And then uh, just getting the shakes and the shivers and uh, um, eventually I just felt horrendous and uh, had to uh, get carried out of the studio that uh, I was working in and uh, progressively got worse, um, was taken to a Chinese hospital and I thought, well, it might be a bit of heat exhaustion from the rowing or it might be uh, just uh, just a bit run down. But, of course, when you're at an Olympic Games, uh, everyone gets tired and uh, a bit emotional, you know, so I think I just thought, oh, well, I'll plough through this, I'll, I'll get some medication and uh, I'll be right. And then I was just getting progressively worse, uh, uh, chest pains, all, all, all sorts of things. And um, by this time, it's a bit of a blur to me now, but I do vividly recall um, the team doctor from Australia's uh, team that was rung by uh, Ray Hadley to go and see me, that uh, he wasn't uh, too impressed with uh, how I was travelling and said the best thing I need to do is go under a couple of professors in Hong Kong for um, viruses Um and uh, I ended up in intensive care, flown out of China to Hong Kong. By helicopter? Um, by aeroplane, yeah, by aeroplane. If it was a helicopter, they got me there in one piece, that's for sure. Um, but I was told uh, before... Uh, I was told before they put me under that your mum wants to tell you that she loves you. 
Mm. And little did I know mm. at the time that mum was told that if Matt makes the flight, he lives. Mm, so we get to uh, we get to Hong Kong, and the first face, a very friendly face, I see when I wake up is my brother, yep. and uh, and then my dad wasn't too far behind him, and, and Graham McNeese from from Sky Channel as well, mm. and uh, a couple of bosses from Two GB. So I was well looked after, um, but I was in intensive care in a coma for a couple of days, mm. and I was in intensive care uh, for at least a week. But but um, had there been a diagnosis at this stage? No, so that was the interesting part. The the professors couldn't work out what I had, and they were quite petrified that it was going to spread through my body because it was quite aggressive. They pumped me with antibiotics. I had six types of antibiotics, and apparently the last antibiotic that I was given was a new one, and apparently it saved my life. Mm. But what they didn't realise was it actually masked what I had. So the professor kept kept coming into me on a nightly basis, asking me the most bizarre questions, such as, have I been spending time around bats? And have I been <laughs> spending time around kangaroos uh, and all sorts of things? And what I have realised since that what he must have been doing is going home at night after a, you know, a red wine with his wife, looking through all of his books, trying to work out what I had. Um, but the antibiotic was masking it. So... Eventually, after six weeks, they discovered from a swab taken earlier in China that I had melioidosis, which is a condition with an acute death rate of 90%. Oh, goodness um, me. And it can be contracted by humans and animals from yes. contaminated soil or water. God knows That's how it. you got it. Well, it was one in a million. It was one in a million. And, you know, there's every chance, like most of these villages that are built for Olympic Games, that it was, we may have been staying in an area that was a, on a scrap heap, on a on a mud heap. Um, the Chinese air is hazardous to human health. So, look, there's every chance I got it through the air in China. Um, that would have to be the logical explanation. But it's like anything when you get the flu or get the cold. If someone asks you, how did you get it? You're not going to know where you picked up the actual germ from. So um, who knows, Tappy? That's the that's the, the strangest part about it is that um, we're never going to know. Um, what I was more – and believe it or not, uh, part of me really didn't recover for a while sort of mentally about it because I felt that I'd missed, you know, the majority of the Olympic Games and I'd failed the station that I was working for, you know. But there was bigger fish to fry with an acute death rate of 90%. Uh, I'm glad I got that odds-on favourite role. <laughs> In your quiet moments, do you think about those few days when you were very close to departing this planet? Well, at the time, I didn't know that was the case. In fact, when they told me I was going into a coma, my initial reaction was, thank God for that, uh, <laughs> because I was not feeling well. Um, but I look back at it now, and if anything, um, when you, you mentioned that I've crammed a, a fair bit in, I think it's driven me. It's driven me to see more things. It's driven me to live life to the fullest, uh, make the best of myself. Uh, and uh, look, you know, if there's another 15 Olympics, I want to be at them, you know. Um, I, I think it's, if anything, I've tried to turn what was a negative into a into a pretty big positive. So, um, that's the way I've seen it anyway and try not to dwell on it too much. In fact, initially when I came back to work, I just tried to forget about it. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is, it's going to be there. It's, it's a part of uh, 
my history now and oh yes i mean what it did, does make you realize tappy is you know if you haven't put the put the washing out tonight or you forgot to put the bins out it ain't important <laughs> <laughs> so matt we, we've got to give melioidosa some of the credit for creating right. your energy your <laughs> versatility and your work ethic well, yeah, I don't know what sort of character, if you were to put it into a human, of what malleoidosis would be, but I think it would be a very angry, probably a very angry person, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were reluctantly but very warmly farewelled when it was time for you to leave Sydney. And one lovely gesture was provided by the Coffs Harbour Race Club, who put on a farewell Matty Hill Sunday race <laughs> meeting. Uh, I was delighted to attend, and uh, you were very close to the Coffs Harbour Club. Definitely. Well, the the inspiration came from all the years back earlier, Tappy, when I won your scholarship and and called my first race on Sky Channel at Wyong, um, because you called your first race at Wyong. So yeah. um, I was just thinking how can I just end this little era uh, appropriately? And I was friends with uh, Alan Johnson and his lovely wife, uh, Tanya, up in Coffs Harbour, and we'd uh, socialised and just beautiful people up there. And I thought, how can I finish this? And there was a, a race meeting in January that um, Tanya works on for breast cancer and mum had survived breast cancer. And I thought, well, that's a, just a lovely gesture. And I thought, why don't I call my last race in Sydney where Tappy called his last race? Um, because you started at Wyong, it's where I started. I thought for the John Tapp Scholarship winner, the first one, it would be a lovely sort of synergy to finish where you finish. So that's why I picked Coffs and, and Alan was very kind to bring a, a few of my friends along, including yourself and Greg Miles and, and Alan Thomas. And we had a lovely, lovely day at Coffs and um, it was just a nice way to, to finish it really. And it was mm. a, probably a low-pressure way of doing it too, away from the, the city tracks and uh, and also, of course, the story of how your last call got washed out. So I thought I'd finish what should have been finished uh, a few years earlier. <laughs> oh, good <laughs> on you, Matty. That's right. That was one of the great disappointments of my life, to get to Coffs for my final call, the 1998 Coffs Harbour Gold Cup, for which I have the trophy on a mantel shelf in my office as oh, we brilliant. speak. Um, I remember boarding the plane at Sydney Airport and walking down the aisle looking for my seat. And uh, there you were with your mum, Sue, already seated and belted up, as they say. <laughs> and uh, that reminds me that um, the honorary president of your fan club is certainly mum. And woe betide anybody who ever speaks ill of Matty Hill. <laughs> Well, that's true. Yes, uh, she backs you to the hilt. So there's no doubt about that. Um, and you know, even now, um, she watches nearly every race I call, and uh, she won't let me. She won't say anything, but she'll let me say it first if I say, "Oh, I made a mistake in that race, or I stumbled there, or I shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have stumbled." And she'll say, "Oh, yes, I heard that." <laughs> she'll yeah, let yeah. she'll let me admit it first, but. Um, yeah, she uh, she's a uh, she hasn't been experiencing great health this year, but she still watches the races uh, a lot, and uh, um, she she just loves it. She loves the races, and um, yeah, she's very very proud. And uh, oh, you're quite right. If if and and that takes uh, I've got to tell you, any race caller, if anyone said to her anything about any other race caller, 
she'll uh, she'll roll the sleeves up and give them what for. Don't worry about that. She's she, uh, yeah. she'd almost be the honorary honorary member of the race callers club. I reckon she puts all yeah. callers under the same umbrella. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And she uh, she 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 knows what it takes to do it, and because uh, she's seen it, you know firsthand and uh you know and, and without her help early on in life driving to all of these country racetracks and, and my grandparents used to love the, the country trips as well um i you know i'd go and call the races and she'd be there eating the scones with the local uh, uh clubs or whatever and she she loved it you know they they just had a great time following me around but also uh yeah, mum and her little uh, yellow Tirana driving me around to the races uh, would have been able to do it without her. She's a, a lady of great wisdom and understanding, <laughs> and she's the perfect mum. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> in the short time you've been calling races in Melbourne, you've witnessed many highlights already. None more memorable than a fourth Cox Plate for Winks. You got to call her last two Cox plates. I did, and it was uh, it was a privilege and a, and a tricky task because you you go to the races predicting that Winks is going to win, uh, and you know that what you say will be played over and over again. But the hardest part about it is that you really can't predict what's going to happen and uh, you, you, you're expected to put the words to, to what you see and little did I know or did anybody realise that Humidor was going to jump out of the tabaret at the 200 metres and make it a race. Um, it was uh, it was a phenomenal Cox Plate but I, I really do recall the, the aftermath of the two races, the last two Cox Plates, the, the feeling was completely different. Uh, after her third, everybody was quite shocked how close she got to uh, the jaws of defeat, but how I think everyone knew that they'd witnessed a pretty special race that day. And then 12 months later, uh, on the day of her fourth Cox Plate, it was pretty, we were pretty aware that it was a bit of a celebration that uh, I reckon she was over the line with a thousand metres to go. The run she had, it just panned out so well. Uh, and it really was a celebration of, uh, of her and, uh, and of the race itself. And, uh, the feeling of it was uh, was of more celebration than the year before, which was of pure shock. So um, she she'll go down as uh, one of the greatest we've ever seen, if not the greatest. And to do what she's done with four Cox plates, the only thing I would have loved to have seen her travel somewhere. I would have loved to have seen her take on the world somewhere, albeit a Japan Cup or a, a Royal Ascot. That would have uh, been the icing on the cake. But. Uh, mm. Uh, she can't do much more than what she's done. No, many agree with you, Matt, on that score. It would have mm. been just wonderful to see her at the elite level in another country. But, mate, she won $25 million in Australia. <laughs> Why would you want to go anywhere? Well, that's exactly right. And, and you know, I was uh, talking to uh, one of the English trainers here the other day before the Ballarat Cup, Archie Alexander, and, you know, he tells his friends back in England that uh, they're racing for a country cup worth half a million dollars. And, uh, you know, a similar race in England, they'd be racing for £15,000. Uh, it's it's almost racing for ribbons, isn't it? So why would you go anywhere else? Uh, and and they were so connected uh, with Winx. And it was uh, every time she raced and the same thing with Black Caviar, I reckon the anxiety levels of everybody would increase, uh, mainly because we wanted to get round in one piece and uh, and as that continually built, I think it got to the stage where I don't think they could have had her go through another preparation. I don't think the owners could have could have faced it. <laughs> mm. 
Matt, as much as I loved Winx and as much as I admired Winx, there is just a grain of animosity uh, in my mind because she had the audacity uh, to surpass the Cox Plate achievements of my great idol, Kingston Town. Well, what a horse he was. And he was an amazing horse, Kingston Town, because uh, I was only, I was a baby when Kingston Town was racing. But the thing was, he, he did it so comfortably in so many races that you called in Sydney and also in Melbourne. He, he made a mess of them in races like the Caulfield Stakes, but he never really liked Mooney Valley, did he? He crabbed around Mooney Valley so much. And that uh, Cox Plate where Bill Collins said Kingston Town can't win, he couldn't win. He was struggling from the 1600 metres onwards. And um, but he, to, to do what he did at Mooney Valley on just pure class, he must have been something else. He was an explosive horse, and I think his regular jockey, Malcolm Johnston, summed it up best of all when he said, when you ask Kingston Town to quicken, you got whiplash. <laughs> How good's that? Yeah, yeah, well, he must have been something else. And I think with with Winks, um, there's always been the uh, – racing's a funny game. You know, a horse wins four cox plates and all of a sudden people, instead of uh, cheering her on, say, what did she beat? She must have beaten nothing. Um, but then if a really good horse wins a, a, a big race by a nose, that we say that it must have been the strongest race of all time. Mm. But uh, she can't really do much more than what she's done. But um, it's, it's impossible to compare. I, I think that's what keeps – the myth mystique of racing going, Tappy, as we can sit around bars uh, until we're blue in the face uh, talking about who was better than who. But uh, in the end, they're all special in their, all, in their own right. Well, Matty Hill, you're just 38 years old. <laughs> Thankfully, with no ill effects from the deadly <laughs> virus you contracted in Beijing, you can look forward to a long and a very fulfilling career doing what you do so well and that's providing a special brand of race calling for Australian punters. Well, thank you, Tappy, and it's the greatest compliment uh, I could ever receive. It's it's so surreal to uh, to think that uh, the, the great man I listened to for years on Channel 9 calling the great races, uh, I'm talking to you now. Uh, it's uh, an absolute honour, and uh, thank you for having me. been a delight to have you on the podcast, and a podcast which was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis.